If you've ever wanted to learn anything about the American Civil War, a good, a good place to start is pick up something written by a guy named Shelby Foote. He's a great historian, and he once told this story of, of a soldier who was wounded at the Battle of, of Shiloh. Shiloh was, was one of those early battles in the Civil War that let um, the world know what a deadly conflict America had uh, ahead of it. Quite literally was some of the most deadly fighting the world had ever seen, but no one knew that's the kind of, of death toll that was coming, the kind of fighting that was going to happen. And early in the battle of Shiloh, this young man was wounded, and so he was sent like what normally happened in fighting. He was sent by his commanding officer to the rear um, within minutes, the, the fighting became what it became. It was incredibly intense. And suddenly that wounded young man um, who had been sent to the rear was standing by his commanding officer again, shouting at him over the sound of the battle. And he shouted, Captain, give me a gun. This fight ain't got any rear. And, and that was true. And that story reminds me of the Christian's fight against temptation. It is a fight that ain't got any rear. It doesn't take days off. But the fight against temptation and victory, victories over temptation can be a, a big part of the spiritual growth of Christians. Chuck Swindoll wrote once, where there is no temptation, there can be little claim to virtue. We're a month into a study through the New Testament book of James. And James is a letter written to, to Jewish Christians because it was written so early. That's the only kind of Christians there were. And he is writing to an audience that is undergoing intense persecution. And the letter he writes is about growing as a Christian, taking our faith serious, seriously, sanctification, maturity. The first 18 verses, which we'll finish today of, of the book of James, are all about trials, periods of, of pain, uh, of fear, of testing, and how God can use those seasons to grow us in our faith. James has taught us already that, that if we approach trials correctly, we, we can gain endurance. We can gain intimacy with Him as we cling to Him. They can increase our trust in Him. We can receive wisdom through them. They can, they can help us learn to look forward and not around for our assessment of things. And this morning, as James continues to talk about growing us in our faith and trials, he's going to talk to us about the relationship between trials and temptation. It's another valuable lesson if you want to grow in your faith. As a Christian, let's read these verses together. James chapter 1 still, we're going to read verses 13 through 18, and they read this way. 
Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust or his own desire. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished or when it grows up, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. There's our passage. We start in verse 13, which is, it's very difficult to translate one word in this verse. The reason is because this word right here, that is, that's how you would write the Greek word peradzo. And this word has shown up a lot of times already in verse 1 or excuse me, in chapter 1. It's all over. Every time we've read this word, it gets translated as trial or something similar in your translation. But this word can mean various different things. Um, If you are going to, the first time you tried to ride a bike, attempted to ride a bike, that word for try or attempt, if you were a a Greek speaker, you you would use a form of that verb, pirazo. Uh, If you ever have tried to trap something, like trap an animal, you would use that word to describe that trap. That word also is the word used to describe a a trial, a tribulation, a, a period of testing. That's how it's been used up until this point in the book of James. That a period of time that God allows that we can grow through. Trial. But all of a sudden in today's verse, we get a fourth meaning for this word because it is the word for temptation. Temptation is when someone entices another person to do something wrong. And all of those meanings come from the same word. And that sounds confusing, but we do it all the time. We do this in English all the time. Our English word bark One time someone uses this word and it's talking about the hard stuff that surrounds a tree trunk, right? The bark. Another time someone uses this word, they're talking about the sound a dog makes. It's bark. And it's not confusing at all. It's just the way language works. It's usually very easy to tell from the context what meaning is being ascribed. But right here is a really difficult one to decide. Because James, he's been using this word peirazo to talk about testing, trials, tribulations, these difficult times that God allows in our lives, and he has a purpose behind allowing them, because he wants us to grow in our faith, to grow in endurance. But this word also means temptation, and I think This is the the, the best way to translate the beginning of this verse. When you are being put to the test, 
You should never say, God is tempting me. That's just my personal opinion. If, you're, if your Bible translates it trial there, which it, or uh, temptation there, or which it probably does, that's fine. And you'll see both things are true. But James has been telling us about God's purpose for allowing painful things into our lives. And now, James wants to let us know one purpose that is not God's purpose. One thing that is not God's purpose when you go through a painful period. And that is, God is not tempting you to do something wrong. Trials can prove the value of our faith, can make us cling to God, can can grow us in endurance, all those things we've been talking about. But temptation is when something is enticing you to do something that's wrong, and God is not in that business. God is never allowing a difficult situation into your life because He wants you to do something that He hates. That's not God. That's not His purpose. But that does not mean when you go through a period of trial that temptation won't come along with it because it will. According to verse 14, though, that same situation that's a trial is also a temptation, but the temptation part, what makes me feel like doing something that is wrong, that's not, that's not God. That's actually me. According to verse 14, the source of the temptation that you feel during the trial is not another person and what they've done. It's not the devil and what he is doing. It's you. When I am going through a trial and I feel tempted to do something God doesn't like, The reason I feel temptation is not because God has allowed this situation. The reason I feel temptation is because I am the one going through that situation. My flesh, my desires, that part of me that wants my life to be about me and how I want to feel, that's where temptation comes from. This is so important to understand. My biggest problem when it comes to temptation is me. It's not someone else. It's not the devil. It's me. You see, we don't need a lot of help desiring to do what's wrong. We don't need a lot of help sinning. James says it's our own desires that entice us and carry us away. That's the language of fishing. (laughs) The, The bait on the end of the hook entices the fish to bite, right? And then the line carries the fish away when it does. When I am tempted and I sin, it's my desires that are the hook, line, sinker, bait, all of it. I am the problem. And every trial is both a trial and a temptation. All of them. 
In every trial, there will be a a path of wisdom that will lead to my growth, that will lead to my maturity, that will lead to the glorification of Christ in me, and there will be other paths that lead to uh, escape, uh, sin, lashing out, and all kinds of things God hates. Some examples. A period of financial problems that you may walk through that's a, that can be a trial that God allows for your growth. You might learn to trust God for His provision of you. You might, you might learn uh, the difference between your wants and your needs and therefore grow. Uh, you might learn uh, how to be generous even when you don't have much. Uh, you might learn contentment that you can't learn when the money is rolling in. But that same situation might also tempt me to do things illegal or immoral to try to get more money. It's both. Uh, If an illness to you or someone you love or a death in your family that, that might be a trial that God allows that where I cling to the healer It might cause me to to understand what really is important and take stock in all these other things that I thought were so important. And now, because of what's happened to my family, they don't seem all that important anymore. And that can grow me and mature me. It can be a trial that works out for my good. But that same illness, that same death can tempt me to despair, can tempt me to doubt God's goodness, to tempt me to, to doubt that He really is capable of, of being in control. It can be both. Young people, a time where you don't get the spot on the team you desire. Or parents, a time where your kid doesn't get the spot on the team he or she desires. That can be a trial God uses. God can use that to develop the character of young people. Can, can help them learn how to be servants, to put others before themselves. Things that can be, are, can be way more valuable in someone's life in the long run than actually getting the spot on the team they want. But that same situation can be a time where a young person is tempted to lash out in ways that, are, that won't lead to their growth. Can just be kind of selfish, kind of a jerk, and bag on the coach and the administration and everyone in between. And to hate and be jealous of someone else. Trials and temptations come in the same package. It's kind of cool that it's the same word, honestly. Because when you are going through one, you might even say, I can't tell if this is a trial allowed by God or if this is a temptation uh, to ruin me. And the answer is it's both. It's always both. That's why Paul says part of the goal for growing as as a Christian is crucifying our flesh, right? We're not trying to train our flesh. We're not trying to improve our flesh. We're trying to crucify our flesh because that's what the problem is. It is me who wants 
to behave and respond in ways that God hates. It's me, and it's you. Because human desires are very powerful things. They're very powerful things. And you know what? In some sense, that's a good thing. It's a good thing. You know, it, God in His grace gave us the capacity to desire. He didn't make us like amoebas or sea sponges or something. Right? The fact that we can feel desires is because you know, like we're made in the image of God. It's a great thing. And I'll go a step further. Our human desires at the, at the basis level, at the foundational level, they are good. Now, don't hear me wrong. Hear me out. We all have desires that are not good. More on that in a minute. But the desires underneath our desires are always desires for God. We just don't know it. For example, someone might have a desire for it's a family service. We'll just say uh, a physical relationship with someone that God says they shouldn't have. You know, that's actually the desire underneath that desire is a desire for God. Because what we actually desire, we actually desire for someone to know me completely intimately and still like me. We have a desire to be completely bare and known and yet be enough and be cherished. And only God can satisfy that. That's actually a desire for God. Someone might have a desire, an unhealthy desire, to escape the reality of the world using uh, drugs or alcohol. Underneath that desire, the desire beyond, behind the desire is a desire for God because it's a desire for, for bliss. It's a desire for a realm where there are no problems. That's only found in God. C.S. Lewis talked about this concept in Mere Christianity. He said it this way, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. See, we have these desires, these longings, and underneath them is always a desire that God will fulfill. But if we live our lives based on following our desires, we are in for a shipload of trouble because our desires are broken. Here's the problem with us, with our flesh. Our flesh, um, what James here calls, Paul uses the word flesh usually. James uses the word desires or or lust. When you read lust in, in James 1 here, don't think only of, of sexual lust. This is just my human desires from my flesh. My flesh, my desires, my lust is I want to be like God. That's, that's the base desire. See, we have these desires underneath our desires that are supposed to push us toward God who will fulfill all those desires someday. 
But we don't want them like that. We want to get our desires fulfilled on our own, by myself. I don't want to wait on him. I don't want it to come through him. I want it the way I want it. That's what turns our desires into selfish desires. And the decision we make when we are tempted, when we are in the middle of that trial where there's a path of wisdom that will lead to my growth and these paths of sin that will not, the choice I always make is this one. Is the operating system of my life, the decision-making system in my life, is it going to be my feelings, my desires, or is it going to be trust in God? That's always the decision. And James wants us to know, because our desires are broken, because our flesh is broken, that part of me that wants life to be about me and what I want and how I want to feel, because they're so broken, if I live my life based on following my heart and following my feelings, James says this, 115, that is going to give birth to sin. And when sin grows up, it's going to bring about death. My desires, if I let my wants and my feelings run my life, it's going to give birth to sin because my desires are broken. Now, there's some important things to understand about this concept. First, this does not mean if you run your life by following your heart and following your feelings, this does not mean all you will do is sin all the time. That's not true. You know why? Because sometimes you'll desire to be good. Sometimes you'll desire to be respected and accepted by other people who are trying to be good. Sometimes you will desire what's right, even for selfish reasons. But you can't control your desires. Your desires control you. And so other times, when you live by your desires, you will not be able to control what you desire that will give birth to sin. We will sin infinitely more sin, or I should say exponentially more sin when we live by our feelings than when we live by trust in what God says. Because make no mistake, I don't care how self-disciplined or moral you are, you will not always desire to do what Jesus wants you to do. Nor will I. That is why if I want to grow as a Christian, I have to decide intentionally the operating system, the, the, the decision-making system of my life is going to be what Jesus wants and I know what he wants by reading this book. That this is going to be what I desire to do, even though I will fail to do it at times. Resisting temptation is difficult enough when we have made that decision. But I am convinced most people, even most professing Christians, do not live like that. 
We live by how we feel and we try to be good while we live by how we feel. We're trusting our gut. We're following our heart. And you know what the Bible says about my heart and yours? Jeremiah 17, 9, the human heart is deceitful above all things. It's the worst there is. And listen to me, yours is not the exception. Deciding, declaring ahead of time that I want, I desire to hand over my will, to hand over my decision-making process to someone smarter than me is vital to growing as a Christian. What's going to control my decisions, my feelings or my trust in the one who made me and loves me? And that's important not because that's what determines whether or not I get into heaven when I die. That's not true. More on that in a minute. But it's important to decide I want my decision-making to be uh, based on what God has told me is best in His Word. Here's why that's important, because when I live by my feelings or my lust, that's going to conceive and give birth to sin, and when sin grows up, it brings forth death. If we live by our feelings, we will sin way more sins, and sin always brings the stuff of death into our lives. From the very beginning, God said sin brings death. It's still true. It's always been true, and it is still true. Now, for the Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if Christ paid the punishment all your sins deserve at the cross, then praise God, your sin no longer can bring you eternal death. Your sin cannot bring you permanent separation from God. But listen, sin brings death every day in untold other ways. Sin, as I've said a hundred times up here, sin is always separation in the Bible. It's not the annihilation of one thing, it's the separation of two things. When I die physically, that will be the day that my spirit separates from my body, right? And you'll say, oh man, look at him, he's dead. And you'll be right. I'll be physically dead. Is sin costing people their physical lives on a daily basis around the world? Absolutely. Sin costs physical death in the drunk driving accident, in the overdose, in the murder. But sin costs death in other ways too. Sin costs relational death, the death of relationships, the death of marriages. It, it it causes some death to seep into my relationship with God. Now listen, not because when I choose to live by my feelings and I sin more sins, it's not that God has gone anywhere or even loves me any less because I still bear the righteousness of His Son positionally. But when I choose to live by my feelings and I really do know what God would tell me if I get close to Him, I stay away from Him. I try to give Him the stiff arm because I don't want to hear it. And so I live by my feelings and I, because we think 
we think we can control sin. We have pet sins that we think won't get out of hand. You don't control sin. Sin controls you. It's not a pet. It's a dangerous animal crouching at your door, the Bible says. And when it grows up, it brings forth death, and we're surprised every time. After the drunk driving accident. After my secret life is found out. After the consequences that I couldn't control start to rear their ugly head, and then I want to know, why did you allow this stuff to happen? You know why? Because sin is deadly serious still. And you cannot control its consequences. When you live making your decisions based on how I feel, I'll sin way more sins. And when that sin grows up, there's going to be death everywhere. That's why it's so vital if we want to grow in this thing to decide ahead of time, I cannot live by how I feel because I don't always feel like doing what he wants me to do. Now, it seems like James abruptly switches topics in verses 16 and 17, but he hasn't. This is actually very cool. James is still talking about trials. He's still talking about temptation. He's still talking about whether or not our operating system will be my feelings or trust in my creator. And he says this, Do not be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows change. Now, do you believe that verse is true? Or those two verses are true? Verse 17. Do you believe that's true? Do you believe that every good thing comes from God? And do you believe that there is no good thing that doesn't? If every good thing comes from God, then anything that's not of God is not good. Isn't that what that means? I don't think we believe that's true. We believe it's in the Bible, and we say we believe the Bible. We believe it theoretically. We believe it theologically. But where the rubber meets the road, when the trial comes, when the pressure is on, do we believe it then? Because when you examine this in its context, in the argument that what James has been saying, James has just said, you live by your desires and how you feel, it's going to lead you to lots of sins. And sin leads to death. That's verse 15. Then in verse 16 and 17, James says, so don't be deceived. The good stuff comes from God. Only source of good stuff is God. The only good things are what God says is good. But then when it's time for you and I to choose between your desires, which lead to sin, which lead to death, or decide to follow what your Father says is best, no matter what. 
Do you believe then that what God says is good will actually be good? Or do we believe there's something better somewhere else? Do you believe that the best stuff always comes from following God? Or do you believe there's something better? Now, you want to know the enemy's role in temptation? It's right here. Here's where the devil goes to work on us. He does not need to help us desiring. He doesn't need to help us to desire something God doesn't like. We do that on our own. But he wants to convince us that James 1.17 is not true. He wants to convince us, no, 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 no. That's not, God's not the only place where good comes from. Look out there. That's actually better than what God wants. You follow what God wants. You're going to be lonely. You're going to be lame. You're going to be bored. The good stuff's out there. He doesn't give it to you. He tries to keep you from all that good. It's his oldest trick. He told Eve in the garden, Eve, stop looking at all those wonderful trees you can eat from. Look at that one you can't. Look how good it looks. Think of what you can be if you chase that. What's it going to be for you? Trust or feeling? Because it takes a lot of trust and the pressure is on to say, you know what? That might seem or that might feel like it would be better, but I trust it's not. Because my father told me. Is God really good all the time? And is, there, is it always true that there's nothing good apart from him? Because I'm telling you, the way we live is mainly by how I feel and we figure out how to, how to convince ourselves and others that God was okay with it. But if it is sin, it grows up into death. Faith or feeling? What's it going to be? How we answer that question changes us. Verse 18 is another one that seems out of place. But it's not. He writes, By his sovereign plan, God gave us birth through the message of truth so that we would be kind of first fruits of all he created. Whatever we read in the rest of the book of James, remember this verse. Underline this verse if you've got your own Bible, and I hope you do. Did James believe in the gospel of grace? Did James believe that people are saved by an act of God's grace that he bestows only on those who believe in Jesus Christ? Or did James believe works played a role? James believed in grace, and this verse is how we know. This is the gospel according to James right here. James says, why, why do some people have eternal life? Well, verse 18, because in his sovereign plan, 
God decided to save some. Praise God. And how did he save some? Well, this says he gave us birth. Your Bible might say something like he brought us forth. It's a euphemism for childbirth. This is James talking about people being born again, like Jesus talked about. That's the language. God decided to save some. He caused those people to be born again. Who are the ones that get born again and saved according to his sovereign plan? Well, those who believe the message of truth. And then James writes to his his original audience, which is like the very first Christians. He tells them so that we, here in the first century, we get to be the very first fruits of all this plan that he created and put in into motion. Okay. That's the message of the gospel. James doesn't dwell on this in his book because again, this book is about growing in this faith, maturing in this faith, but he believed in in the gospel of grace. But what's it doing here? In a larger discussion about trials, Right now, in a discussion, in a paragraph about temptation and what's going to be your operating system, uh, your feelings or your trust. Why did he suddenly talk about people being born again by a message of faith? What's it doing here right now? When the trial starts and the pressure's on, And that path of wisdom seems like there is no way that would work out best for me. You ever feel like that? You ever feel like, I I know what God has said I should do right now, but there is no way that will work out better for me than this other plan I can put into action over here. Has anybody ever felt like that before? Has you ever got to the point where you feel like there's something better than what God says? It's really hard to believe that what God says is best will always be best, even in my situation right now, right? So how do we trust that what God says is best will be best, even when it feels impossible that that would be true in a situation that I happen to find myself in? How do we know? You know how we know? We look backwards at what he's already given That's why this is here. James says, don't choose sin and your feelings. It's going to grow up and turn into death, and you're going to have lots of regrets. I know it's hard, though, to understand the best way to live is just by trusting him. So look backward. He already gave us what proves to us he's not holding out on us. When, when Paul wrote about this concept, he wrote it this way, Romans 8, 32. Indeed, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, freely give us all things? You hear what Paul's saying? When you're in that situation where you have to decide what God says is best and what you feel like would be better, how can you trust that what God says is best is best? Listen, he's not holding out on you. He would have never given up. He already gave you his son to be tortured and killed. He has proven he will do right by you. So you can trust him. You can trust him. 
during this study through James, we're being challenged to, to mature in this faith of ours. We're being challenged, listen, to stop using grace as if the purpose of grace is it allows me to live based on how I feel To mature past the thought process that says, I can live by how I feel. God has to forgive me anyway. James is saying, it's time for us to grow up and understand that's actually a terrible way to live. You know why? Because I'm going to sin way more sin. And when that sin grows up, it's going to turn into death. And if our goal is to grow in this thing, grow in our likeness to Jesus Christ, then James has done us a great service today by whacking us in the face with these truths. He's reminded us first that when we find ourselves in the trial and I am tempted to do what is wrong, it is not God tempting me, which means we got to get rid of this line of thinking. Well, if God didn't want me to do fill in your sin here, then he should have kept me from being in this situation. Or if my spouse or my friend didn't want me to do this or that, then they should have behaved differently. No, James told us, your problem is you when it comes to desiring sin. And my problem is me. It's not God tempting us. He wants to carry us and grow us and nurture us. us. But we have got to accept and embrace our weakness to get to his strength. We're not trying to train our feelings to feel differently. We're trying to understand how weak and unable we are to do that and just cling to him. God is not the one tempting us. Our feelings do. And then he's, he's just encouraging us to answer this question intentionally today. How am I going to live? By feel or by trust? By understanding and admitting that the best way for me to do things is the way he says, even when I'm going to be in a situation sometime soon where we're doing exactly what he says will seem, it'll feel stupid. It's coming. It'll feel illogical. There's no way I can go toward that person with kindness, with gentleness, with love after how terrible they've been. There's no way that can be right. There's, there's no way I, I can be married, I can stay married to this person. Let me tell you what they've done. There's no way. It's not smart. Financially speaking, there's no way doing this that God says is right. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be ruined. I'll be lost. I'll miss this opportunity. I don't know what the situation is, but it is coming, and it will feel stupid to do what God says is best. But do you believe that the good stuff comes from him and the only place to get good stuff is with him? Or do we believe there's something better 
Trust or feel, what's it going to be? Let's pray. Our Father, um, we, we are people that have not fully crucified our flesh. We are people who continually desire things that you have said are not best. But God, we are people who want to grow in this thing. This thing we call Christianity. And so God, I, I don't ask that you deliver us from any, any trial. But I know with every trial, you, will, you, you do have a path that will deliver us from temptation. And you will keep us from evil, though you will not deliver us from every trial. Give us a wisdom, Lord, to see the difference between feeling and trust. That we might walk more with you and see what you have for us as the only good to trust you with the results. That you might be glorified in us and that we might grow in the likeness of our Lord and our Savior. We love you, Lord, and we pray that in his name. Amen. Stand up and let's finish our time this morning.